the Israeli state is not the only practitioner of ethno-nationalist supremacy. India as well. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. How do you feel about religious nationalism? In her 2020 book, The Power Worshippers, Catherine Stewart brings to light details of the American version of what has become an international, far-right, anti-democratic, well-organized, and well-funded movement. Here in America, it's Christian nationalism. In Israel, it's Jewish nationalism. But it doesn't stop there. There's Hindu nationalism in the India of the 2020s. What does it mean for those minorities living in the nations where religious nationalists are in power? Well, it's not pretty. The most obvious and brutal current example is what the Israeli state is conducting against the people of Gaza and the West Bank, the Palestinians. But there are others, notably in India, which has also experienced an authoritarian leader who is similarly dedicated to the imposition of religious nationalism, supremacy by one ethnicity over all others. This from a nation that had been at the leadership of what was called the Non-Aligned Movement. Our guest today, Stan Cox, writes on Tom Dispatch in his piece titled The India-Israel-U.S. Triangle. Not so much about the Israeli assault on the Palestinians, but he tells us about similarities in the India of Prime Minister Narendra Modi. He says, Zionism views historic Palestine as a land for Jews and Jews only. Of Israel and India, he says, these parallel visions, along with the two governments' increasingly authoritarian tendencies and ready use of violence, have drawn them into a dark alliance, and the consequences of which are unpredictable. The subheadline of the piece about the acts of the Israeli and Indian states is, its human toll will be incalculable. Today, our guest is Stan Cox, who puts the Palestinian and Israeli nightmare into the larger international context. Thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive, Stan. Great to be with you, Bert. Stan Cox is the author of The Path to a Livable Future, a new politics to fight climate change, racism, and the next pandemic, the Green Deal and beyond, uh, ending the climate emergency while we still can. This essay was, that we're going to discuss today was co-authored by Preeti Gulati Cox, an artist and writer. Well, again, Stan, thanks so much for being with us. And you begin your essay on the linkage between the two religious nationalist states by looking at the profound change in relatively recent history of India. As I said, it had been at the head of the non-aligned movement, which, well, how would you describe the non-aligned movement? Um, the non-aligned movement was um, primarily um, formerly colonized nations, um, and, and this started after World War II when there was a wave of uh, decolonization. Um, and these countries did not want to take sides in the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union and tried to uh, forge a, uh, a third path in uh, India being one of the most populous or probably the most populous uh, non-aligned country um, was kind of a leader in that. Uh. And they were especially, um, they especially championed the cause of the uh, 
Palestinian people. Uh-huh. Um, it, Israel and India were uh, born just a few months apart in 1947-48, uh, um, and both came from partitioning of uh, former uh, British colonial lands. Uh-huh. And and the British, uh, they have been exceedingly colonial. I'll tell you, the more I read about British history, the more I am not thrilled. (laughs) Lines in the sand almost literally were drawn by formerly Great Britain, and I guess they used to be great, for both what's now Israel and India and Pakistan. The beginning of the end of Britannia ruling the earth came actually in 1917 with the division of the old Ottoman Empire, as they were crumbling at the end of the First World War, it's between Imperial England and Imperial France. There was the Sykes-Picot line, which gave France Lebanon, and the UK taking under a mandate, whatever that is, uh, Palestine. India, of course, was England's jewel in the crown. And so this 1947-48, both India and the emergency, emerging state of Israel, uh, big changes. But before we get to that, about... Tell us about the new thinking that came about shortly after the end of the First World War. About, you say, about the time Zionist settlers were beginning their occupation of Palestine in the early 1920s, just after the First World War, an Indian right-wing figure, V.D. Savarkar, I hope I pronounced that right, fashioned the ideology of Hindu Hindutva. What is Hindutva? It um, translates as uh, Hinduness. It's the the ideology that the um, that the Indian subcontinent, um, which today uh, comprises uh, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, uh, Sri Lanka, um, that that subcontinent um, was a land for uh, for Hindus that that. Um, even though there are um, they, a hundred or a couple of hundred million Muslims, uh, um, uh, um, I think thirty-five million Christians, there are a lot, um, and like a couple of hundred million uh, people known as uh, Dalits who are um, the lowest caste or the the oh, wow. casteless uh, uh, in, uh, population uh, in the, um, under the Hindu ideology. And then there are a lot of uh, indigenous people as well. But um, in, in the 1920s, this idea of uh, Hindutva took hold and ended up being uh, spawning the rise of a um, fascist organization that its in, uh, Hindi name abbreviates as RSS. Uh, they were watching um, Mussolini in, um, in, in Italy, uh, the fascist dictator there in, in the late 1920s, and they um, started a movement to... Um, Kind of to enforce this uh, idea of Hindutva on all these other um, uh, population groups. Oh, great! Yeah, what a what a terrific model, Mussolini. <laughs> uh, yeah. And and so many of us have seen the movie Gandhi, and we got a little picture of uh, what happened 
when the division between uh, Muslim-majority Pakistan was carved out of British India. Uh, it was not a, a pretty scene then either. And, and yeah. so what happened nearly simultaneously, 1947-1948, in British Mandate Pakistan? And how, how did it go, partitioning India and what's now Pakistan? Well, the uh, the British, as they tend to do, just drew these uh, arbitrary <laughs> lines that um, separated um, both cut off from the Indian subcontinent, both on the east side, which is now Bangladesh, and then was designated East Pakistan, right, Muslim-majority uh, area, and then on the west, what is now Pakistan, was a Muslim-majority area. But there were people, lots, you know, tens of millions of, pe of Muslims living in what was being designated as the Hindu nation, India, and tens of millions of Indians living in um, uh Pakistan, either East or West Pakistan. So there was this huge uh, panicked migration um, of people going both ways over the border trying to get into um, the country that matched their religion. And, and many millions of, of people died in this uh, uh, time of what, what they really? call the partition. You write that uh, as head of the non-aligned movement in, in the early 80s, uh, India's post office issued a stamp showing the flags of India and occupied Pakistan flying side by side above the phrase solidarity with the, pa with the Palestinian uh, uh, people. Uh, now the party in power actually flies Israeli and Indian flags side by side. Uh, that's quite an evolution. Uh, how did that happen? It, it seems like, you know, to go from head of the non-aligned movement and to, to have a stamp saying solidarity with the Palestinian people, how did that happen? It, um, India did not recognize um, um, the state of Israel until 1992. Wow. So, you know, this was a long time uh, that in which they were, you know, they endorsed the Palestinian cause and and didn't recognize Israel. But that was right around the time when India was moving from a kind of a social democratic mode with kind of a mixed economy, you know, a little capitalism, a little socialism, going to uh -huh. a total. Uh, neoliberal model in in the 90s, um, and uh, part of that, and, and then in um, in the early 90s too, there was the Oslo Accord uh, that um, was an agreement between the uh, Israelis and Palestinians, um, and so um, in India wanted to you know have as many you know capitalist trading partners as possible, uh -huh. and they. Um, so they, the government became more and more friendly um, toward um, Israel um, and uh, developed a lot of uh, um, economic ties, which they, they hadn't had before. Now, among the, um, the people of India, there is still very strong affection for Palestinians, especially among the hundreds of millions of uh, Muslims 
in India. Um, but <laughs> but the government um, has, um, is totally, especially now with the far-right uh, BJP government over the past decade, is uh, really uh, in the tank for Israel all the way. Well, as Bob Dylan said, money doesn't talk, it swears. <clears throat> right. yeah. uh, he was absolutely right about that. And uh, so there's been a lot of movement. And recently, I don't know exact details, but there was a movement, I believe, in California to require doing away with, uh, uh, I don't know, there's been some movement to do away with castes, with the caste system, and to right. recognize castes. Tell us, I mean, the, the, the party that's in power now, somehow I'm guessing that they don't want to change the caste system. How is that uh, the reality? What's going on there? Now, you, you mean with the in this thing in the U.S.? Uh, yeah, there was something. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, there. It was um, the um, city of Seattle, and then also the state of California. There were um, resolutions that I believe both were. I know the one in Seattle was passed in, uh -huh. I think, California, um, that simply said, you know, no um, discrimination within companies or, or any organizations uh, on the basis of uh, caste. And uh, this was, it was mainly, you know, there are a lot of um, a very large Indian population today, especially in the uh, Bay Area in California in the um, you know, various digital tech industries and so forth and you know, some you know, you know, people in, in the in the forefront of these companies and they um, you know, didn't like being labeled as um, you know, discriminating when um, you know, they, they had a long tradition of uh, of uh, discriminating against uh, um, lower caste uh, people uh, that's some some tough stuff and uh, you know that's a way of uh, this whole ethnic ethnic supremacy you know it's it's that's what we're talking about here today and it's it's not just in Israel but obviously as we're talking about today, it's in India as well. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about uh, the uh, India-Israel-U.S. triangle, about uh, what, what similarities there are with uh, uh, well, the religious nationalism uh, in, in, these, in these countries. Our guest today is Stan Cox, who's uh, written an article about it. And <laughs> the Israeli state was never part of the non-aligned movement. Uh, it, it was always in the Western uh, sphere of influence, but it used to be pretty liberal. I mean, it had kind of a, a lefty reputation back when it was, was founded and in the 50s. But for many years, India also was, if I'm correct, uh, in, reliably in the Congress Party camp, uh, which is uh, more moderate than uh, what's in power now. And also in Israel, th there's the racist, far-right, religious, Zionist Koch party, which was founded by the formerly disgraced Rabbi Meir Kahana. It was considered re extreme and racist and rejected again and again. Now its philosophy 
in the state of Israel seems to be in control. So in India, tell me if I'm correct that there's they're, they're very the uh, Bharatiya. You can say it better than I can. The BJP, the Bharatiya Janata Party. Are there similarities of reasons for this shift? What are the factors which contributed to this shift rightward in both states? I uh, I think it's because both um, countries um, have this kind of uh, tarnished history over you know, exactly the same period of 75 years of having um, of suppressing the the rights and uh, and, and, and any uh, justice for um, their um, well in the case of India a Muslim minority who are about 15% of the mm. Uh, population, uh, and in in Israel's case, uh, suppressing a Muslim majority in the territories that uh, Israel is illegally occupying, um, and um, in in India's case, the further um, complication is their um, long run seventy five year conflict with. Uh, Pakistan over um, the state of Kashmir, which is uh, is divided now between um, uh, was divided back in the forties uh, or fifties um, between India and Pakistan. Um, um, so India has been occupying uh, their part of Kashmir in a very analogous way to. How Israel is occupying the West Bank and Gaza, mm. um, and so naturally you have uh, resistance from the local population, and um, so in in both cases it has um, re- resulted in a, a lot of violence. Um, that that line of what's called the line of control that runs through. Kashmir hmm. with uh, in Indian troops on one side, Pakistani troops on the other side, hmm. is the largest concentration of armed troops anywhere in the world, more than the DMZ in, in Korea, more more than um, any other place. I I had no idea, and you know, it's it's pretty well known. It's blasted all over the media these days about what's going on in uh, in uh, Palestine and and Israel. But uh, Kashmir, uh, we don't really know so much about that. And what, so, where where is Kashmir in relation to uh, India, Pakistan, and uh, former East Pakistan, Bangladesh? And I wonder if Kashmiris are similarly resource poor like the people of Gaza um, they are not as resource poor I'm, I don't believe but it, uh, Kashmir is, sits right on the, the top of India and to the um, east of uh, northern Pakistan uh-huh. and and it's a uh, in the uh, Himalayas, so it, it's a, uh, a place of uh, stunning beauty and, and 
uh, mountain meadows. They fit a lot of these uh, Bollywood films. They'll film the, the dancing scenes up in in, in uh, Kashmir, um, uh, and it was um, uh, fairly. Um, it, it not. It, it's not the mo. It wasn't the most. Um, traveled to place, but it um, had a very, or has always had a thriving um, uh, uh, tourism uh, industry, um, but uh, and, and was a big producer of fruits and nuts and ver- various agricultural uh-huh. products. But um, but there's it um, not so much in uh, recent years. It's been um, uh, um, what do you call it? Uh, travel you know, travel there is restricted. Not non-Indians aren't uh, generally tourists can't go there these days. And, and there's you know, there's not so much violence right now. But um, in uh, 2019, um, India revoked the special status of Kashmir that it had been had kind of semi-autonomous now they've um uh pretty much put them under centralized uh, control from new delhi and oh. are trying to um take away the um the citizenship rights of um, uh, muslim people there so is there uh, and again, pardon my ignorance, but I'm curious, is there a Kashmiri uh, independence movement or it, it, there has been struggles between Kashmir and, and New Delhi, I assume. And, you know, one has to wonder how much everybody wants to have a sense that we have we, the people who live here, have some control over our own future. And I, I wonder about uh, that in Kashmir versus uh, the power of New Delhi. Oh yes, there is. Um, is long been, over this whole seventy-five years, there um, has been a resistance movement in Kashmir, and that um, that along with um, kind of trying to keep Pakistan out. Who Pakistan isn't trying to? Uh, yeah, there there have been a couple of wars fought along that border, um, but today it. Um, those Indian troops are there mainly to keep uh, uh, keep the Kashmiri people down and to um, yeah, go after that uh, the resistance movement. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, they like to keep control. People, powers that are, like to retain their power. And I, I do wonder. You know, we're talking about uh, similarities. And differences between uh, the Israeli state and the Indian state, and I wonder if there's any kind of group like, uh, you know, that that has power in in our government, in the American government. There's APAC, the American Israeli Public Affairs Committee, which has huge, incredible power over Congress, uh, and I wonder if it, in India, if there is, uh, if if there's a split. Or any kind of, uh, you know, there's not much able to be resistant to APAC here in the in the U.S., but what about in India? Do we know about that? Do you know about that? I was just wondering if there's anything like uh, any kind of interest group like APAC in, uh-huh. in, uh, in India 
that has uh, real power over what Congress does. If you know, if say that there were members of Congress who who wanted to, uh, you know, be less tough on on the Muslims and less of a religious nationalist. I I don't think there's any equivalent right um, or, or counterpart to APAC, but the um, Indian American community is um, gaining uh, quite a bit in. Uh, political um, influence. Um, again, a lot of it is um, these um, in, um, tech and industrial uh-huh. uh, uh, type people. Um, and, and we have the uh, shining example of um, the current uh, uh, pre- um, Republican presidential contender Vivek Ramaswamy, who is um, He's kind of typical of a number of these um, Silicon Valley um, Indian Americans are extremely uh, right wing. He's probably um, more right wing than Trump himself. He's he's trying to be the the new Trump, yeah. um, but and, you know he's not. Um, uh, every, everybody doesn't like him, but he he is kind of in, in indicative of where the um you know, uh, affluent um indian american uh-huh. community is, has drifted that direction yeah and india has shifted like so many states from traditional moderate liberalism to today's neoliberalism a word we've used a couple yeah. of times and you mentioned the yeah. I2U2 group. What does that mean? What explains that shift? And what does that have to do with neoliberalism? Um, well, the um, the uh, two I's are India and Israel, and the two U's are the United States and the United Arab Immigrants. So it's quite a motley <laughs> crew there. But they... Huh. Um, this past summer at the G the G20 meetings, which are the right. the you know, 20 large nations, large economies, where they um, meet every year, they met in New Delhi, and one of the kind of side um, things that came out of it was this I two U two agreement among these four countries, and it's it's kind of uh, opaque what it is, but it, it, it's um, an agreement to that, that, that these four governments will try to um, raise money from or, or to get um, private companies to invest in uh, various uh, infrastructure uh, projects. Um, so, you know, for example, um, uh, um, companies in the in the Emirates or in, in the U.S. are apparently going to invest in what they call food parks in India. I'm not sure what the, those are. Climate smart technologies, and then the four countries are trying to get investment for a unique space-based tool for policymakers and entrepreneurs. And oh, wow. <laughs> that, that, if you look at the I two U two website that's pretty much as far as it goes so yeah it's not clear which companies are are investing in which countries but um it is 
just it's one more marker along the way in this uh, Israel um, uh, India uh, partnership. And you know, England, uh, the, the formerly Great Britain, used to. I mean, they, they've long been a power in the region. And the old between the the uh, the island of uh, England and India, uh, there was something called the Ottoman Empire, which sort of got in the way. It was on the path between England and its India. It you know, it was British <laughs> wow. India. And you point out that, that the G20 summit met in India's capital, New Delhi, recently. So in, in that historical context, what's the significance of the India-Middle-East-Europe economic corridor, which was approved at that summit? Sounds curious. Yeah, yeah I, you know, I um, said in, incorrectly that I, too, you, two came out of the G20, but um, it, it came a little earlier. But this uh, economic corridor is um apparently would um have rail um you know, freight uh rail lines running um east out of uh, the mid east area uh, towards india and then would have shipping going from the uh, the middle east uh, to europe and 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 then to have this um transport connection going, I guess, all the way from Western Europe to um, India. <clears throat> and it's, um, uh, go it's going to um, apparently have it, the kind of central link between the rail and sea would be in uh, Haifa in, in Israel. Uh -huh. And um that uh, port, the whole port of Haifa, uh, was recently bought by uh, a man named Gautam Adani, who is India's richest person and, and a, a buddy of Modi, uh, the prime minister. So, um, so India is not only you know, kind of one anchor of this uh, uh, economic corridor, but an Indian national is going to own the, the port that uh, is kind of the pivot point for it. Um, now, it's pretty clear um, to the people who know about these things that this is um, meant as a challenge to China's uh, so-called road and belt initiative, which uh -huh. is trying to you know, do the same thing, have, you know, this uh, Asia uh, Asia to Europe um, uh, connection um, for trade and, and so forth, but un under uh, Chinese uh, uh, auspices. <laughs> so the 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 uh, the port of Haifa. I mean, it's all. I mean, money. You know, the, the port of Haifa. Uh, they they fit into this economic arrangement. And who who was the uh, power there? That did I hear you right? He bought it. Right, you know, the uh, the port is now owned by this um, uh, oligarch from uh, who lives in India. Wow! And and another, I mean, India's big interest in this, I think, is um, it can get access to uh, fossil fuels um, from the Middle East more easily because the 
um, the, the Middle East um, countries involved in this are, of, of course, Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates. And I, and I guess Jordan is involved too. So, um, so this, you know, you know, we know that diplomatically Israel and uh, the UAE and Saudi Arabia are kind of um, you know, trying to you know, move toward better relationships and so forth. So I guess this, this is a lot part of that. There's a lot of money involved here. And if you just tuned in, Bert yeah. Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about uh, threats to democracy, threats to uh, uh, people's uh, representation, minority representation over, you know, and, and a chance to participate in their own future. Our guest today is Stan Cox, who's written an article titled The India-Israel-U.S. Triangle. And it's really interesting stuff as to what is, is going on, what... Uh, where the money is here, and India and Israel, there's a lot in common with ethnic uh, supremacy issues that are going on and, uh, and, and, and some repression. And so the market uh, for energy, obviously, is a major driver of, well, pretty much everything, uh, of economic and thus military policy. In what ways is Chinese influence a factor uh, and how does this uh, Gautam Adani fit into, uh, I mean, China is allegedly communist, but boy, they seem awfully uh, centralized capitalist decision-making these days. But what about, uh, in what ways is Chinese influence a factor uh, that, that drives perhaps Israeli uh, economic policy as well as uh, Indian? India and China have long uh, been rivals in Yes. So uh, this is just um, <clears throat> kind of a, a continuation uh, of that. Um, and <clears throat> excuse me. So and and I think right. Yeah. The, and the Europeans and, and the Americans um, want. Um, yeah, apparently, I don't know much about this road and belt thing, but uh, they. On several fronts, are trying to prevent China from gaining even more influence throughout uh, Asia and, and in uh, Africa. Yeah, and India now is a, a kind of a natural um, ally for the uh, Western uh -huh. powers. To they, they uh, prefer uh, right-wing government like um, like India's to. Um, a uh, communist superpower. <laughs> That's for sure. That's twas ever thus. Uh, huh. yeah. And I wonder, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what's been called the Modi Bibi romance. People know Bibi Netanyahu reasonably well. Americans do, uh, but Modi not so much. And what is this bromance between these two uh, big powerful guys? <laughs> They have a lot uh, in common. Um, um, Modi came to power back, his party, the BJP, came to part, power back in the 90s for a short time. But then when he came to power in um, uh, 2014, and, and they've been, um, had control of parliament uh, ever since then. He immediately started 
um, um, pushing these uh, very uh, oppressive policies against um, uh, non-Hindu uh, ethnic groups, religious uh, groups, and especially Muslims in uh, in India. And this RSS, this um, you know, fascist uh, uh, kind of shock troops who are, are now have been around for almost a, a century, they... Oh. It, he has not used, unlike Israel, has not used the army outside of Kashmir. Has not used the army as much as um, as the IDF is used against the Palestinians. But these thugs, uh, RSS thugs, they're gangs that are in. Uh, they, I think they have fifty-six thousand chapters in India or something. But they. Uh, just routinely carry out all kinds of, uh, of violence against both Muslims and Christians and um, uh, Dalits and indigenous people, but um, primarily targeted at Muslims. Of course, um, uh, Netanyahu in Israel um, it has kind of a parallel situation where he's um, using troops um and as we've uh, seen here in the past couple of months um uh, arming settlers as well to uh in the west bank to uh, uh they're kind of acting like the rss in india you know, mm-hmm. attacking um uh, palestinians there and so, and they so both in their um 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 their ethnic supremacy and in their just general political um, uh, uh, right-wing outlook, they are, there's a, the bromance comes pretty naturally. <laughs> and they've met uh, quite a few times uh, uh, over the uh, past few years, and um, they... Uh, Always, they they seem to have an increasingly warm relationship. Oh, great! A uh, <laughs> couple of guys we love to hate, but uh, I, I didn't say that. No, no, no. <laughs> but uh, and I I do find it. I mean, money is just such a big factor in so many uh, policy decisions, no matter what the country is. But every now and then, it's not always about money. But as you point out, India has become the top importer of weapons and surveillance equipment from Israel. And Israel is known for having real good stuff when it comes to uh, that category of uh, inventory. Uh, what are what are like the weapons and the surveillance equipment that they've gotten? And what are they in, they're intended to address? Just the Kashmiris, or maybe, I mean, the Saudi government uh, is is known for uh, that. The, a lot of the people in in Saudi Arabia don't really like the government, and they're worried and scared because the government has tremendous power and a lot of weapons. So, uh, it, it's domestic uh, uh, resistance that is the case in in Saudi Arabia. But so, w- why why do they need this? What do they want with these weapons and surveillance equipment? And what is involved in that? That is mostly for um, Kashmir um, and for they're, they're, China and India have a very small border way way up in the north oh. of India. Um, so that's another heavily militarized um, area. But um, 
uh, Kashmir, especially this um, surveillance um, stuff, is um, extremely um, important. They um, because they are um, have completely stripped um, Kashmiris of any uh, any rights, and they're um, um, all they have all kinds of um, I, I don't know exactly what they're using, but um, drones and uh, and so forth, and they're um, the Indian government and military have um, they frequently just cut off all communication to Kashmir. Um, they monitor and 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 manipulate uh, social media, and it's kind of a kind of a 1984 state that they're uh, oh, terrific or, or Orwell's 1984 right. um, that that they're um, operating in in Kashmir and so that that is one reason that they um can they're importing um you know, so so much uh, military and surveillance stuff from uh, Israel well it's good stuff i guess uh i don't have any huh. uh but uh one of my guests a long time ago i don't i wish i could remember who said it's it's important that we think with history and, you know, most Americans, we don't know our own history, quite frankly, and there's powers that want us to not know our history. But in 2002, something I frankly didn't know about before doing the research to do this show, in 2002, 50 Hindus, it sounds vaguely familiar, were killed by the alleged torching of a train car in the western state of Gujarat. And after some after that, some 2,000 Muslims were killed. And this does remind me about uh, what's going on now. Uh, and you write that one of the worst atrocities perpetrated against Muslims since India's partition occurred then in Gujarat. So tell us about that and what sounds so similar to the Israeli argument, uh, but who lit the fire when it comes to justification for collective punishment. Talk about that for a while, please. <laughs> Um, yes, that um, in, in both cases you have a, a kind of a, a murky um, incident in which tragically um, people were um, killed. In, in the case of India, these were um, Hindu um, um, kind of uh, operatives, um, kind of related to um, BJP and, and RSS, who were in this one train car um and it's a long story but they were um in, involved in uh destruction of a, a mosque and so forth but ah. um they, they were um in in the circumstances of this car you know, rail car getting torched and burned up is um it, it's not clear at all that it was um muslim activist or or anything who who did it but it was immediately blamed on them and there was just this paroxysm of uh, violence uh, in which uh, these 2000 muslim people were were killed and in very you know, it was uh, there were a lot of atrocities it, it was um, 
really horrific. Um, at the time, the uh, Gujarat's um, chief minister, equivalent to a governor in the states, uh, was none other than Narendra Modi, um, uh-huh. and and he um, he um, just sort of winked at this whole stuff. He he, he never endorsed the killing, but he did uh, little or nothing to uh, try to stop it. Mm. Um, uh, and, um, as you said, when, um, you know, um, his, um, who was able to say somebody from his, uh, government who was asked about this, uh, you know, horrific killing of the 2000 Muslims, they, um, he said, but who lit the fire and, and that, that justifies everything we're doing, um, uh, which is, you know, very similar to the rationales that the um, Israeli government and military officials are giving for what they're doing now to Gaza, that they, they, it was a horrific thing that happened to them, but that the circumstances of that too are murky and it's being used as uh, as an excuse to mm. um you know, um kill um you know, more than uh, 10 times as many people on on the other side yeah yeah collective punishment uh, i i, I yeah. kind of thought collective punishment was something that is is a no no yeah. but apparently not yeah and uh, again, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Stan Cox. We're talking about the India-Israel-U.S. triangle, the similarities, the parallels that there are uh, between the uh, ethnic nationalists in India as well as in, uh, in, in uh, Israel as well. And many of us are familiar with what the Palestinians refer to as the Nakba, which happened in 1948, the catastrophe. Recently, this is curious to me. Recently, Israel's agriculture minister said this war will end as Gaza Nakba 2023. What do you think he meant? <laughs> well, he uh, he got in trouble for doing that because he was oh, uh, he was just outright stating what Israel is trying to do here. Because in 1948, very soon after the British mandate area in Palestine was um, partitioned into a uh, uh, homeland for the Jews, Israel, and and a Palestinian area, which um, the remnants of which are the West Bank and Gaza. Um, they, they, they actually had a, a, a good bit larger area, but um, the uh, Israelis went in um, and um, drove the Palestinians out, killed a lot of them, and drove them yeah. out of a good bit of their own land. And and, and then um, they they were um, yeah, confined to an area similar to West Bank in in, in Gaza today. So. Um, that and so that was uh, the Palestinians called it the Nakba or tragedy of right. 1948. 
Now, what what do you have today in Gaza? We have the Israelis come in and, and uh, say, get out of the north, we're going to bomb it. And so they bomb northern Gaza, and they keep saying, um, everybody go south because we're just bombing uh, the north. And so right. people... Uh, went um, in, in this huge migration, 80% of Palestinians are now out um, displaced mm. from their homes. They they go to the south, um, then Israel starts uh, bombing the south, and they're saying, go, uh, go farther south, go down uh, towards the Egyptian border. Um, clearly, uh, it's been pretty clear all along that they want to keep pushing, keep pushing until uh, Egypt relents and allows um, the Palestinians to escape into the uh, Egypt's Sinai Desert, which, you know, the Palestinians don't want to go there. The Egyptians don't don't want them. But it's a, a ethnic cleansing operation yes. that it, it, this guy says, uh, Nakba 2023, it would be, uh, it would dwarf the Nakba in the um, the uh, ruin of um, the number of people's lives who would be uh, ruined. It'd and be a tra- tragedy. Oh, huge! And I wonder if there are forces in India these days that would like to have ethnic cleansing of the Muslims. I, I'm getting the sense that uh, there might might be that. And yeah, go- um. Yeah, that's a little. That would be much more complicated when you know, if, no, when you've got uh, two hundred million people instead of two million, and mm. they're um, very much um, even, quite evenly distributed throughout the country. So it, it would. Um, there's just no no place that um, you, you could. Uh, push them into um, the, I mean, the last time uh, something like that occurred was um, in, in 1947 in the partition into India and Pakistan. Um, uh, and that uh, certainly didn't uh, go well at all. Um, so I, it, it's, it's for the BJP and Modi, it's more of a, a long-term uh, project. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, you could compare it, I guess, with the um, Jim Crow South in, in the U.S. That you uh-huh. just have have a segment of your population that doesn't have the rights that the rest of you do. And there's not a lot you can do about that. You're right. I mean, it's it's confined in in the uh, Israeli state to. Uh, you know Gaza and the West Bank, but it's all over, uh, and as it was in the uh, in the uh, South, and of course, <laughs> the nuclear bomb. Uh, you know, not a lot of countries have the nuclear bomb. What does it mean that both India and Israel are nuclear powers? <laughs> um, yeah, that is <laughs> obviously a, a real concern, and you know. It, Israel has, um, while never actually confessing that they have it, they know that everybody knows that they do, and they... Um, right. I forgot they pretend use, they don't have yeah. it. Yeah, go ahead. 
Yeah, yeah, they, you know, holding a gun to the world's yeah. head. Um, and, and then India and Pakistan are in a nuclear, long-time nuclear standoff um, that fortunately, is, um, there have been some uh, pretty scary um, uh, incidents, but uh, so far, you know, that hasn't emerged either. So I, I'm, I'm sure that the uh, Modi BB bromance is kind of enhanced by the fact that they both um, have um, their uh, hands on the trigger. Mm. <laughs> clear weapons. Of course, our president does too. Uh, at least it's yeah. uh, Biden now and not that orange thing. Uh, but uh, I was, I, I have to say, I was disappointed after learning a bit about uh, Narendra Modi uh, to see President Biden chum it up with him uh, as I've been not pleased to see Biden doing that with Bibi Netanyahu. So what about the interests of the United States for these photo ops where Biden is chumming it up with Modi and with Bibi Netanyahu? What, what does it mean to the people of India and Gaza? And I wonder how it might affect uh, America's future as you know, we like to think of ourselves as a leader of the world. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really ruining our um, image, um, you know, not, not just among uh, Palestinians or Indian Muslims, but among um, uh, young, uh, the young voting population in the United States is um, uh, overall there, livid with um, the fact that we're um, you know, basically endorsing that the government Biden are basically endorsing what. Israel is doing that we're in, instead of cutting off the three billion plus in military aid that we have given uh, Israel every year for a quarter century or for a half century now, mm. um, that we you know, they're trying to pass uh, this fourteen fifteen billion dollars in military aid um, is. Just it, it's um, re really criminal. Um, uh, but uh, the, you see around the world the um, uh, Palestine solidarity marches that are right. um, happening. Huge. My son lives in Copenhagen, and um, for you know, this whole two months, uh, every night somewhere, there's a massive uh, demonstration in, wow. in Copenhagen. He says they're, on, they're only getting bigger, too. Uh, so this is really going to uh, blow up on us, either figuratively or literally. Yeah, it's uh, as uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said of the Israeli situation, that it might be a, a, a tactical win, but a strategic uh, disaster for <laughs> Israel and and for the United States, too. Well, we here, you know, average Americans, we think we're, they, the powers that be like to convince us that we're powerless, but we are not powerless. What can Americans do if we're concerned about the parallels in India and Israel? You got suggestions? <laughs> Well, uh, what uh, many, many Americans are doing right now is uh, demanding a, a ceasefire. Um, 
or pushing our government to demand a ceasefire. And of course, instead, when the UN General Assembly um, voted on uh, overwhelmingly to uh, on a resolution uh, for a ceasefire, uh, United States voted uh, against that. India abstained, uh-huh. which was their way of showing their support without looking too bad. Um, but um, and then uh, we need to um, oppose um, not only this um, um, an extra military aid, a huge lump of aid that um, that Biden is wanting to send Israel, but we uh, need to cut off. Uh, this three billion a year that um, we've been providing, and that will make um, make a lot of difference. There, um, if you remember, um, early on after the um, Israeli attack, they were um, not allowing any um, um, food or any shipments of humanitarian aid into. Right. Um, into Gaza, then they they called this uh, temporary um, cease. Well, well, this was actually earlier. Um, Israel said, "Okay, we'll allow two trucks a day or something instead of the two hundred that they needed." And uh, this um, the general who was allowing it to come in, he the press were getting after him and saying, "Why are you letting any humanitarian aid in there?" And he says. Uh, look, uh, the U.S. said you've got to do it. They are they supply all of our um, military. They are crucial to our military with their aid. And so, what can I do? I got to uh, do what they say. Um, and so, yeah, that shows right there that we're the, our government is not powerless to stop this. We um, we can. Uh, have a big impact on their behavior, but we're not doing it. And maybe maybe people can even speak out uh, against uh, Modi and the uh, uh, you know ethnic supremacy there that's going on there. Yeah. Well, there's we're not powerless. We can speak up, and it does matter. It absolutely does matter. Stan Cox, thank you so much for being with us today and shedding light on on what you call the uh, India-Israel-U.S. triangle. Thanks so much, and uh, let's hope for some more justice in the future, maybe, if we push. Right, Kurt. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. Thank you. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free.
And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.